enjoying the sights of Washington, D.C. can give anyone a patriotic boost. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today we're enjoying a guide to our nation's capital, plus suggestions for domestic trips all over the beautiful USA. Pauline Fromer joins us in a moment to discuss her guide to Washington, D.C. Along with the iconic monuments and museums, Pauline reminds us it's also a city offering a stimulating smorgasbord of cultural treats from around the world. Think of Washington as an all-American city, but also as a marvelously international city. Later in the hour, Patricia Schultz joins us. She's followed up her bestseller with another Thousand Places to See Before You Die collection, and this one focuses on just the U.S. and Canada. I hope that people don't wake up at 90 and understand that they've seen next to nothing of their country, because this is a pretty remarkable country. We're celebrating the greatness of our country today with tips from the experts on Travel with Rick Steves. It's an all-American 4th of July today on Travel with Rick Steves. Pauline Fromer edits a guidebook to our nation's capital. She's here with insights for those sorting through the too-many-must-sees along the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And later in the hour, Patricia Schultz inspires us to hit the American road with her exhaustive collection of a thousand places to see in the USA and Canada. Let's start with our insider's guide to Washington, D.C. Pauline, thanks for joining us. It's lovely to be here. Thanks. So with the new administration in Washington, have you seen any changes to the city that a visitor might notice? Well, a lot has changed there. Actually, with the new president, the restaurateurs of Washington, D.C. were very excited because apparently under the Bush administration, it had been uh, people who, who very much liked meat and potatoes. So the restaurateurs are now trying out more innovative cuisines on their clientele now that a new set of people are in. So that's in terms of the restaurant scene. But there are also new museums and new historic sites opening up. You wouldn't think that could happen in a city with so many museums and historic sites, but but there are some good ones. That's interesting that when you have a, a new administration, a lot of people leave town and a lot of new people come into town. And depending on the, uh, the flavor of the new administration, it will have an impact on the cuisine being served in the city. It does. It has an impact on lots of parts of the social scene there. They're also expecting Obama's people to go out and party more. So the club owners are happy, too. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing. So uh, you may not know how the uh, impact of one politician or political party's uh, policies will affect the nation as a whole, but in the city where they live and work, you can actually measure the impact. In the city where they live and work, I think the historic sites help you understand how they work there and the fact that historically Congress has always squabbled, that that's an integral part of our democracy, that, that there have been times when the different branches of government have been at war with one another. Um, and when you go there and you learn the history, I, I think it hopefully gives the American people a little bit more patience uh, with our current leaders, that they find out that what we're seeing today in certain ways is not that new. You know, Pauline, the city itself is a designed city, right? It was it was built mm -hmm. to be a capital. How does that impact our visit? Well, it impacts the entire look of the city. Uh, a gentleman named Pierre L'Enfant, who had been a general in the army for Washington, D.C., was the mastermind behind the city, and he felt that it shouldn't just be a city. It should be an embodiment of the ideals of, of America. And so you know how they have those confusing traffic circles all over Washington, D.C.? Those are supposed to represent the sun and the streets that shoot off them, the rays of enlightenment that are supposed to be going throughout the city. As well, no building in Washington, D.C. is taller than the Capitol Dome. Uh, so it has a much more livable, old-fashioned aspect. You really feel enveloped by the streets, uh, which have been wonderfully preserved. So many beautiful Victorian houses uh, in such neighborhoods as Calorama and DuPont Circle. It's like stepping back into the past because, by law, there are no skyscrapers in Washington, D.C. So as you come into the city by plane, you get this wonderful overview, and you can see the famous monuments and buildings uh, quite easily. And when you're on the ground, the same thing is true. You've got these boulevards that lead from one great site to the next. It's a planned city, right? Absolutely. And a lot of the sites are right next to one another. It's a city you really literally can walk around. Uh, you don't necessarily need to take a tour. You don't need to even take a cab. Most of the great sites, especially for first-time visitors, are right there on the mall easily accessible and free. That is the wonderful thing about Washington, D.C., is most of its sites are absolutely free. 
and they're world-class sites. Now, the mall is the spine of your sightseeing. Our, our, we've got a daughter going to Georgetown sure. now, so we have a great excuse to go to D.C., and it's a little overwhelming. I mean, you can see all of the sites sort of speckled along this vast mall, but it's overwhelming to know how do we spend our day sightseeing. How do you sort through all of these museums, and what do you recommend are the highlights or the, the not-to-be-missed sites? Oh, it's so difficult because there are such riches in D.C. We we considered certain sites as iconic sites, those that are so definitive of the city and of the experience of being in Washington, D.C., that they can't be missed. Tops on that list, I think, is a visit to the Capitol. And thanks to the new Visitor's Center, it's a little easier to do that than it used to be. Although, you know, Harry Reid, the majority leader, made an infamous comment that thanks to the new Visitor's Center, you're no longer going to have to smell the tourists. Uh, because they'll be waiting indoors to get into the Capitol. Unfortunately, the people who designed the Visitor's Center have left the area that people still have to wait, often for hours and to get through security, out in the open. So I think you're still going to smell the visitors in the summer. It's, it's going to be a sweaty experience, but it is an important experience, especially not only to take the tour, but you can literally go into Congress and hear a debate. You can go into the Supreme Court, another top experience. Recently when I was there, uh, I heard a case that is going to impact the way police officers take evidence from their witnesses. Uh, It was fascinating. Uh, And it really is like a boxing match watching the Supreme Court in action. The lawyer starts to speak and boom, Justice Ginsburg hits him with a question and then another Justice Souter hits him with another. And the lawyer I saw looked absolutely stunned uh, at the fact that he could barely get a word out. That's a beautiful thing that in our democracy it's accessible and people are welcome to observe the uh, proceedings going on. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Pauline Fromer, who's written and updating a a wonderful guidebook called Washington, D.C. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Sally's on the line from Lavelle, Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. Hi. Oh, well, I just want to mention I just showed up without reservations at the Capitol this morning at 9 a.m. and was able to go right in, 15-minute wait, and had a wonderful tour of the Capitol and saw, uh, is it Speaker of the House Pelosi? Mm-hmm. I happened to walk right through, and I just loved being a part of history and with such ease. Well, that's the fun thing about the Capitol tour. You actually go right by a Pelosi's office. And yesterday I spent nine hours and took in the National Gallery and I saw some of the best art uh, I've ever seen. Even though I've been to the Louvre, all my favorites were here at the National Gallery. My question is, I I wasn't planning my trip to Washington months and months in advance, and I would have loved to have gone in and seen the White House. And in all my readings, I understand that you have to prepare in advance, but everything I've read says only groups of 10 or more. So what does a single traveler do to have opportunity to visit the White House? Well, what they do is they take groups through in in groups of 10. But what your congressperson should do is simply put you as the single traveler together into a group. Uh, Most congressmen will do this. Sometimes if they don't have uh, space in an upcoming group, they'll call a congressman from a neighboring state. But you're right. This has to be done well in advance, up to six months in advance. That is the only way you can see the White House nowadays. But you don't have to be a group of 10. You just have to do advance preparation so that your congressman office can put you together with others into a group. Actually, your congressman can also give you a great tour of the Capitol. I don't know about your guide, but mine kind of rushed through it. And the congressional aides give very gossipy insider tours of the Capitol, where you learn a lot about what's happening today, sometimes things that maybe uh, their bosses don't want you to know. So if you go back, you might want to take that tour as well. Pauline and Sally, speaking of bosses and congressmen and their aides, I have managed to get my congressperson on the line right now, and he can give us an insight. Uh, Jay Inslee is with us from Washington, D.C. Jay Inslee, representing the 1st District in Washington State. Jay, are you there? You bet. Jay, uh, this is wonderful to be able to talk to a congressperson, and we who are in the travel industry are very impressed by the commitment of our government to be accessible and to, when we visit Washington, D.C., almost on a patriotic pilgrimage, to have a good welcome and have the help of our representatives to show us around. What advice would you give to people that want to come to Washington, D.C. and have a meaningful experience? 
Well, first I would follow whatever Rick Steen's advice is because it's unerringly accurate. That's my first. That's first free advice I would give to anyone. Well, there's my uh, congressperson for you. Okay. <laughs> hey, listen, my boss he's is got Rick Steen. He's, he's my top number one constituent. Uh, a couple things. First off, I'd encourage people to come. I mean, literally, there's only one thing that everybody in the country agrees with: Republicans, Democrats, and whatever, independents and otherwise. When people come here, they, they enjoy the experience, and it, it's just really been universal. And that includes kids younger than you would think, and, and it's just such a great family visit. You know, kids way down in the preteen years still have a sense of the history of the place, and it's actually very impressive to me when, when I take families around on occasion to see how much they relate to the history of the place. So number one, I just hope people will come. Number two, you know, everybody has their favorites. I would certainly uh, encourage people to call the member of Congress before they come because there is the White House and Capitol tours that members of Congress can arrange, but there's a host of others, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing that the kids get a real kick out of, special tours of the Library of Congress, the National Archives, uh, Mount Vernon, there's some special, the Pentagon, there's some special tours that members of Congress can arrange. So I think that that makes sense. And then number three, I think asking for the little secrets of the members of Congress that they can share of the special moments. My favorite is going to the Lincoln Monument at night. It, it is just uh, sort of a, a special moment with uh, you know the champion of democracy, Abe Lincoln, at night. It, it, and, and I think if, they, if you ask your members of Congress, they'll, they'll share some little secret moments like that for you. You know, I get a sense that a lot of great leaders in our country take a private moment after dark and uh, find inspiration at some of these monuments there decorating Washington, D.C. It is true. Uh, you know, I, I take a rundown. Or I live, uh, I share an apartment uh, when I'm not sharing my home on Bainbridge Island with my wife, Trudy, uh, with a couple of members of Congress next to the Supreme Court. And I'll run down the mall at night and go up and see Honest Abe and read the second inaugural with Malice Towards None and Cherry at All. And I, you know, I've read that thing a hundred times, and it, it never ceases to get your hair up on the back of your neck. Then you walk down the steps, and you can see the star on the stairs where Martin Luther King stood and gave his incredible speech and look down you know, to your left where we now have a, an African-American as a president you know, you can't come here and not be effective. I'm, I'm sorry to say that, not if you're American. I'm, I'm Rick happy St- to say it, actually. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Pauline Fromer, author of the Pauline Fromer's Washington, D.C. guidebook, and we're joined by Jay Inslee, a congressman uh, representing the 1st Congressional District in Washington State. More in just a moment. The words of old Abe Lincoln, of Jefferson and Payne, of Washington and Jackson, and the tasks that still remain. The little bridge at Concord, where freedom's fight began. Our Gettysburg and Midway, and the story of the town. The house I live in, my neighbors white and black. The people who just came here, all from generations back. The town hall and the soapbox, the torch of liberty. A home for all God's children, that's America to me. We're at 877-333-RICK, and you can post your ideas for Travel in the USA in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Pauline Fromer, who's written 
a beautiful guidebook, Pauline Fromer's Washington, D.C., and my congressman, Jay Inslee, is on the phone from Washington, D.C., to give us an insight into how we Americans can uh, make a better patriotic pilgrimage when we go to our capital. Jay, if somebody is coming to Washington, D.C., is it realistic that they can drop by and, and visit their congressman's office or their congressperson's office, or, or are we just getting in the way? No, no, it, it, you're welcome. People are always welcome, and you can walk right in your members of Congress and senators' office, and it is always a joy. And a lot of times I'll be running out to vote, just get to shake hands with some friends, but it, it is fun for members of Congress and the staff, just even a, a drop by and to get to shake hands and see, you know, some young kid and talk to him what he thinks about Abe Lincoln's kind of fun. So, <laughs> yeah, they are welcome. But to maximize what you can get out of your congressional office, calling ahead really does help to make appointments for these special tours that you can get and or at times to meet if you want to have a few minutes with your member of Congress or Senator. That, that's tough, frankly, because of the scheduling back here. So calling ahead really can't help out. Then you get a special tour. You know, you get a tour of the Capitol and go over and find out who's Thomas Jefferson's foot is standing on on the big mural in the Statuary Hall. And, and if you're really lucky, we can show you where Elvis uh, autographed the panel in the Capitol. That's a super <laughs> little spot. As Pauline said, you get sort of more intimate tours right. when you take a tour with the aid of your congressperson. Right. You can yeah, have the yeah. generic tour that they put on like anywhere that you can sign up for like anybody who's visiting our country. But if you have a congressperson, take advantage of that. And it seems like one thing you guys do is prioritize to give people a good tour. Of course, it won't be your particular congressperson, but one of your aides who really can get you behind the scenes and you can camp out there in the spot where the congresspeople meet the press and you can actually peek in on the action. You can, and you can see your members of Congress that you idealize, and you can also see members of your Congress that you think are dumber than stumps, too. So you can see the whole spectrum <laughs> of human achievement and failure right in the U.S. Capitol. And it is the spectrum of, of human ability. So, I mean, I think people enjoy that on occasion. Now, Jay, what is the general take on the new visitor center there that uh, has just opened up in the last couple of months? Well, um, it's sort of mixed. I'll just give you my kind of personal take on it. It's a magnificent space but it is a heck of a lot of space. I heard an earlier commentator saying people have to wait outside. You really don't have to do that now. Just sometimes there'll be a line of maybe five or ten people to get through security, but otherwise you are inside. So it is a... It is an I have to. I have to interrupt. When I was there, it was an hour-long wait to get through security, well, and that's outdoors. That. We're going to have to fix that. You <laughs> yeah. have to tell me what happened. By the way, it was an hour on Inauguration Day, if that was the day. That's no. a very unusual nope. circumstance. So. <laughs> okay, well, they're going to sort through that, but it is this big underground welcoming center that is sort of yes. uh, filling the space between the Supreme Court and the Capitol building. Is that right? It is. It also has a very nice exhibits about the Capitol itself that I think has been well done, very interesting. I, I found it quite interesting. And it has a huge amount of meeting space. My only concern, frankly, is is I think we might have overdone it a little bit as far as the amount of the meeting space. It is supposed to also serve as a place for Congress to meet in the event that the Capitol ever became unusable for any reason. So I think people will enjoy it. Uh, it might have been just a tiny little bit of overkill, but that happens on occasion. That happens on occasion. Jay, when you've got uh, a guest and you want to go out to eat, uh, what's your tip for me and Pauline about your favorite restaurant or eating My experience? tip is that if you want uh, nice food in a very nice uh, setting that's kind of a cultural delight, don't go where I eat because uh, we sort of <laughs> hang out on the lower end of the food chain. A uh, lot of places within walking distance of Capitol Hill and everything from the you know the Rick Sneed's uh, fake Italian to reasonably uh, priced Greek places. And there are some nice restaurants here with walking distance as well. And by the way, that, that's the one tip I would have for people. Bring your walking shoes because this is a walking town. It's got great public transportation with the metro. It's wonderful. But the mall is still a mile and a half and two miles long. And, you know, bring some good shoes because there's a lot to see and people tend to, to put a lot of miles on. Pauline, do you have a question for our congressman before we let him go back well, to work? I guess uh, before you go back to work, when you go back there, have you tried Good Stuff? That's right up at Capitol Hill. It's run by a guy named Spike who was on Top Chef. It's a burger joint with darn good burgers. So that might be something you want to add to your repertoire. Very uh, affordable, have, but good I'll burgers. I'll try to check it out. And if they have dinners for less than seven I'll be there for sure. So. <laughs> they do. <laughs> All right. Jay Inslee, congressperson representing the 1st District in Thanks Washington State. Thanks a lot for State. getting Americans back here. Thanks a lot. Good luck with Thank your work, Jay. Take care. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Washington, D.C., and Pauline Frommer's Washington, D.C. is uh, out in the bookstores. And Pauline, when we're thinking about visiting Washington, we want to be sure to connect, I think, with the government. What else would you add for people wondering about how can I get into the White House or visit my congressman or get the most out of that patriotic uh, pilgrimage kind of thing? Remember that you want to use your time as best as possible. Uh, so the, the National Mall, the memorials there are open pretty much all day and night. Now, you don't want to go too late at night because that can be a little dangerous. They're not as well patrolled as they should be. But you can go there pretty early in the morning, get a real start on your day by going to the places where there isn't a guard at the door. Uh, and then you want to see all of the governmental sites, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the White House, if you plan in advance. If you don't plan in advance, there still is a White House Visitors Center that you can go to that gives you some good information about the history of the White House. But it's not just about the government there. It's about the government as an international entity as well. A lot of people forget that there are dozens upon dozens of embassies in Washington Many of them open up to visitors often in the evenings and put on cultural performances from around the world. These evening entertainments are often free. Uh, you can find them listed in the Washington Post. So think of Washington as an all-American city, but also as a marvelously international city. Uh, beyond Southern food, its major cuisine there is actually Ethiopian food. Hmm. Washington has the largest community of Ethiopians outside of Africa. Uh, and you can try that marvelous cuisine at dozens of different restaurants, some of which put on shows as you eat. And it's also a very cheap way to eat for $10 per person or less. Wow. I love this notion that when I'm on a tour, you drive by the embassy row and they point out, well, there's Norway, there's mm -hmm. Mexico, there's Uganda, and so on. But in right. Washington, D.C., if you take the initiative, you can actually get into those beautiful palaces that represent those cultures to our country and enjoy some cultural exchange by the music. Yeah. Eh? You want to look in the newspaper to see what's happening. In Washington, more than other cities, the embassies aren't just places where you go to apply for visas. They really see themselves as marketing hmm. their countries. And so they put on great exhibitions and great performances so they can tell the world about how wonderful their homeland is. Yeah, and take advantage of that as a visitor. I'm talking with Pauline Fromer, her book, Pauline Frommer's Washington, D.C., and Matt's on the line in Durham, North Carolina. Matt, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, I was just calling. Uh, I was in D.C. actually last week and uh, visited uh, the Library of Congress for the first time. Uh, it was not my first trip to D.C., but I'd never done the Library of Congress, and I was heartily impressed by it. I uh, would easily put it in my top three of things to do in D.C., um, along with the National Building Museum and the mall. Uh, and the one thing that all three of those places have in common is they're typically not afflicted by large crowds. Well, what was so good about the Library of Congress, Matt? Um, it's stunningly beautiful, and it's a, a real anomaly compared to the rest of the sort of federal buildings, which are all neoclassical, you know, grand columns and whatnot. It's almost gaudy, but wonderful for that reason. Well, you know, it was the first cultural building that the federal government ever produced. The Library of Congress had been around since about 1800, and it was used by the Congress to do their research. Uh, then it was burned down by the British during the War of 1812. And when they started giving copyrights to books, they made it a requirement that every publisher send two copies of their books to the Library of Congress. And that's how it got copyrighted, and that's also how they made the library bigger. But by around 1890, they had too many books, and so they decided oh. to build this glorious building. And you're right. I think it's the most beautiful building in Washington, if not one of the most beautiful in the nation, uh, yeah. with gold leaf on the ceilings, and they have these uh, marvelous uh, putti sculptures everywhere. And if you notice, if you go back... Each one of them has a different implement in their hand. They're supposed to represent the different professions. So one's a farmer, one's an entomologist, one's a pharmacist. It's really fun. And everywhere oh, wow. they have these great chandeliers, but with bare bulbs in them, because this was the first building in the federal government to have electricity. So they were really wow. very proud of those bare bulbs. It's, it's oh. a marvelous place to go. I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I give it three stars. Yeah, it was it was just wonderful, and and one thing I did is I went over to the uh, I think it's the Madison Building, the building next door where you can actually register to become a researcher, and mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't take more than a, I think a passport or a driver's license, and once you're registered, you can actually gain access to the reading rooms. 
which are great to see from the viewing gallery, you know, that everybody can see, but are entirely something greater when you're inside them staring up at that massive dome, you know. Wow. Mm. Matt from North Carolina, thanks for your call. Sarah's on the line from Puerto Rico. Hi. How are you doing? We're doing well. Have you been to Washington, D.C. lately? Um, back in February, we were there, actually, visiting some friends. We used to live there. And what um, is your advice for people considering a visit? I think the district is awesome, and there's enough there to keep you busy for several weeks, but I think it's also a missed opportunity if you don't explore the surrounding areas. One of my favorites is Annapolis and the Naval Academy there, and the state capital of Maryland is also there as well. And there's some pretty important historical events that took place there that a lot of people may not be aware of. There's a great trolley tour that leaves out of the little tourist center that's in the center of the old part of the town. I don't remember how much it cost, but it was pretty reasonable. And the historical information that they give you is fabulous. And they take you all around and explain the significance of historical markers, the architecture, and you really learn a lot about how Annapolis developed as a major city on the harbor there. And so your advice is when you go to D.C., it's lots to do there, but be sure to get out of town, and you'd advise Old Town Alexandria, Great Falls National Park, and Annapolis. Yes, they're fabulous. I think you find, too, you'll kind of get a better flavor for what it's like to live in that part of the country, too. Yeah, they're wonderful places to visit. Alexandria is easier to get to than Annapolis. Unfortunately, there's not great public transportation between D.C. and Annapolis. So to really do it well, you're going to need to rent a car, whereas you can take just the metro very cheaply and easily from downtown D.C. That being said, it is worth it. It's a beautifully preserved city full of uh, historic riches, as you said. And I think one thing... uh uh, Sarah, you're calling from Puerto Rico. It's fun when you're in Washington, D.C. to see that the license plates say taxation without representation. <laughs> I guess Puerto Rico has representation, right? Well, uh, I don't know if you call the resident commissioner representation <laughs> or not, but he's there, I guess, to um, drum oh, okay. up support for statehood at this point, I think. So you guys have something in common with the uh, D.C. people you meet then. Thanks yeah. for your call, Sarah. Thank you. And Michael's on the phone in South Pasadena, California. Michael, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you today? Doing good. Any thoughts on D.C.? We, we had gone to D.C. a couple of years ago, my wife and I. One of the things we did, which probably is not on the high list of uh, tourist points, was actually go out and visit the uh, National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., and uh, we really enjoyed it. It was kind of a pleasant change from doing the, the Smithsonian Museums and some of the other memorials that we visited. Um, nice chance to get outside. There's a wonderful woods and gardens outside of the cathedral as well. And we really enjoyed just kind of strolling through that and looking at some of the, the vegetation, the hmm. plant life there. It was just really kind of a nice change in the middle of, a, of one of our days when we were there. Did you notice the Darth Vader gargoyle on the outside of the cathedral? They had a contest when the cathedral was being finished for what monsters they should put on it. And so there's some pretty wacky ones. If you, you go know, back, that's, take that's a look right. for that. It's interesting you mentioned that. We did enjoy walking. We actually walked all the way around the cathedral to kind of look at those. Somebody told yeah, me there's a piece brilliant. of moon rock, actually, in the stained glass window there. Mm, I, I'm not mm. aware of that. But, yeah. <laughs> hey, I didn't what, know about that either. I was impressed by how far away from the center it is, being the National Cathedral, but it is a stop on the hop-on, hop-off bus tour, right? We didn't have a, a car. We did the public transportation with Subway, and we did that hop-on, hop-off tour, and that's how we actually got there. It's actually over near Georgetown, I think. Yeah, but if you do take that hop-on, hop-off tour... Uh, and use it to hop on and hop off, it'll get you out to the National Cathedral quite um, efficiently. And I thought it was a nice, relaxing uh, couple of hours up in the top deck just watching the city go by with a relatively good uh, narration. Pauline, what's your take on the on the hop-on, hop-off double-decker bus tour there? I think it's good for a second or third visit. I think mm-hmm. if you're going for a first visit, you're going to be mostly on the mall anyway, and it might be a waste of money because yeah, you, it's, you it's can for a, so easily walk from place to place. It's for a wider view of the town, I guess, if you want to get away from the... Uh, the mall there. Yeah. Michael, thanks for your uh, encouragement to check out the National Cathedral. Yep. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Pauline Fromer in her book, Pauline Fromer's Washington, D.C. Pauline, when people fly to D.C., they have to choose between Dulles and National Airports. And, of course, National is right downtown. It's so central that I don't even believe they allow planes in after midnight or something because it would be disruptive to people trying to sleep. And Dulles is far away. Why would somebody go to Dulles, and and what are your tips on using these two airports? Well, I think people go to Dulles because the 
price might be lower to there, but you have to remember you're going to pay a lot more to get from there into the city. From National, you can take the metro right in. So factor in the cost of a, of a taxi, which you won't have to use if you go to National. So there's not good public transportation connection from Dulles? Not as good. Right. Not so as national good. It's better great. from National. Jim's on the line in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Jim, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Yeah, I, I was just uh, down in Washington last weekend with my bro- uh, visit my brother who's on a short-term uh, assignment there, and we went to the uh, Holocaust Museum. It was uh, recommended by a colleague at work, and uh, it was incredibly moving. I was, uh, I was very impressed. It was um, one of the best museum experiences I've, I've had. Uh, many times they're, uh, they're either dry or they're geared uh, at a much younger age, but that was, uh, it, it was fascinating and, and moving at the same time. There's a lot of Holocaust museums, and that really is a powerful one. They do it well, don't they, Pauline? Yes, absolutely. And you're, you're right. It's not geared for younger people. In fact, I would say under age 11, you probably shouldn't bring them there. But for adults, it really is a, a very moving place to go. They have a permanent exhibit, which is enormously interesting. But they also had a, um, a temporary uh, one, and this was on Nazi propaganda. And it was, um, it was fascinating and, and scary all at the same time. Would that be a permanent or a temporary exhibit? Uh, it's a temporary. Whenever you're going to a museum, be sure you're aware of what is the temporary exhibit, especially in a cultural center like Washington, D.C. You can stumble onto some opportunities of a lifetime. Jim, thanks for your call. Hey, thank you. So, Pauline, we've been talking about the wonders of Washington, D.C. I, I love to get these comments from travelers. Uh, uh, don't miss the Library of Congress. Get out and see the National Cathedral. Uh, the mm-hmm. National Gallery, somebody said, was as enjoyable as the Louvre. And when I went to the National Gallery... You know, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't compare it to the Louvre necessarily, but I would say it was a marvelous artistic experience. You see all the great masters right there in Washington, D.C. and beautifully displayed. It's on its way to being on a par with the Louvre. You have to remember the Louvre is a collection that it took centuries to collect. The National Gallery has only been around since the 1940s. So for that short span of time, they have some remarkable wonders there. The only uh, painting in the United States by Leonardo da Vinci is there, and it's absolutely glorious. Go look for it. And I'd say most of the sites we've been talking about are within a, a reasonable walk from our government's Capitol building. It's so easy when we're travelers to be thinking about all the wonders of the world and forget what we got right here in the U.S. of A. And boy, top on the list for anybody, if they want to understand our country, is going to our nation's great capital. Pauline Fromer, author of Pauline Fromer's Washington, D.C., thanks for all you've done to help us American patriotic pilgrims better appreciate (laughs) our own capital. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Up next, we'll travel across America with Patricia Schultz. She's the author of the best-selling compendium, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, which she's followed up with a companion book of A Thousand Places to See right here in the U.S. and Canada. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're joined by Patricia Schultz. And Patricia has written uh, the classic Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Patricia spent eight years of her life collecting this incredible anthology of the world's greatest hits. And now she's come out with a new book called A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Rick. 
You've spent a, a lot of your life traveling and, and exploring the world and collecting this wildly successful anthology of the world's greatest hits, and then you spent four more years putting together a North American version. How did that compare, that, that process, with the collecting the greatest hits of the world? Well, you know, it was more daunting in the sense that this is my home turf and my patriotism that had me so determined to do it well and to do it justice and to not leave any leaf unturned or rock unturned, it's whatever the expression is. At the same time, it was more navigable because it was a single continent and not the globe. It was um, my own homeland and not some exotic place on the other side of the world that was kind of harder for me to get a grasp of or to see fully. And also, logistically, it's far easier to get on a plane for a long weekend to go to Chicago for the jazz festival than it is to spend a week in uh, Patagonia. <laughs> so in, in many ways, it was easier. In other ways, it was more difficult. I also came to this tome with the experience of the first book behind me and understood somewhat better how to put together a book of this size and breadth because it, it is... Um, these are big books. These big are book. bricks. I mean, if ever <laughs> you, you think of some books referred to as bricks, these are bricks. You could build a home with these books. They're huge. And, <laughs> Thank um, you. I just, I'm, I'm, they're fun books just to page through. Any traveler would love it. Now, I would imagine when you stick your neck out and say, this is the top thousand, you're going to get some people saying, why didn't my favorite place make it in? Now, when you do the global book, um, you know, you're not opening yourself up to too many Bulgarians who are going to be offended that their town didn't get You'd into it. You'd be surprised. But this, American, <laughs> but this American book, you probably get a lot of people from Alabama that really know what you're doing and everything. But you did get Bulgarians then saying, what happened to my spot? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's funny. When you think of the responses that I got for the USA and Canada book, the majority of them, I'm happy to say, were more people coming out of a sense of, oh, my God, I can't believe you included X, because mm -hmm. they were so amazed that their little scene, they thought unknown beyond the immediate area festival or state park versus the national ones mm -hmm. or um, barbecue shack actually made the cut. So there was a lot more of that type of reaction, which was very heartwarming to me because um, – I would always think, yes, <laughs> I found them all. Patricia, familiarizing myself with your books, it occurs to me, and correct me if I got the wrong impression here, but the, the greatest hits of the world was more of a front door, beaten path, famous kind of, these are the greatest hits. Whereas in the United States, it seems like you went a little more for the offbeat and intimate and in sort of backdoor places. But nonetheless, uh, incorporating all of the big guys, the usual suspects that you would anticipate, you know, the Grand Canyons and yeah. the Jazz Festival of well, New Orleans. Basically, and there was 150 uh, American and Canadian sites that made it into the top thousand of the world, and that was the core of the thousand that you uh, built the, mm -hmm. the America-Canada book out of. And I would imagine uh, you had a chance to break apart some of those and, and cover them in much more depth and so on. Yeah, and to flesh them out or to scale them back in an attempt to incorporate everything. It was um, a real eye-opener for me to study the first year or so just mm -hmm. how I was going to approach this because it was a challenge. And it is, I think, one of the most singularly astonishing continents in the world in terms of what it offers, the diversity and the importance of what we have here, I think is unmatched anywhere else in the world. And I might be taking a lot of flack for that. <laughs> well, is there a kind of a, is there kind of a post 9-11 patriotism that you're tapping into here? Um, absolutely. But I think that sense of patriotism, if you really get down to, you know, talking to the guy across the counter at um, the hot dog stand in Chicago or, you know, the park ranger taking tickets at Glacier National Park, that there is that patriotism inherent in most Americans. Mm -hmm. And that's what fueled me on as I met the people in the big cities and the small towns or the crossroads or on the Indian reservations. Wherever you go, there's this sense of pride of place, whether it's a humble little place that nobody's ever heard mm -hmm. about beyond that 20-mile radius. It's more pride of your hometown. I mean, I'm sure there's patriotism, but a lot of it is just pride, local pride, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Local yeah. and national and mm -hmm. 
I guess, just homespun pride. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, who has spent 12 years collecting 1,000 places in the world and then 1,000 places in the United States and Canada in two wildly successful books. I think they must be successful because they have a huge market. I mean, anybody who's going to travel will use these as a Whitman sampler of travel dreams. Anybody who's done their traveling can use it as a scrapbook to remember some of their favorite places. And a lot of people just aren't in a position where they can travel and they can just page to this and travel vicariously. Patricia, let me just say a couple of places that caught my eye in the United States and Canada book. Tell me, in a, in a nutshell, why you chose to list these. Uh, the Iditarod. Oh, um, I've been to Alaska quite a number of times, and for the first time in the winter months, when most people don't think of going, and went for the Iditarod in March and found it, I think, to be one of the most fascinating sports races. It's by Dog Sled. And it follows a historic route. I believe it's a 1,000 miles long. The people who follow it feverishly for weeks in advance, and there are teams who come from all over the world, it was Alaska as celebrated by the Alaskans. Mm. And I kept thinking, this is part of my country. And it was so foreign and exotic to me and so fun. And they call it the um, Arctic Mardi Gras because <laughs> there's a whole lot of celebrating going on. When people go to the Iditarod, they must be going to towns that have a population of 800 and there must be a thousand tourists. How do they accommodate all these people in this uh, once in a, in a blue moon crush of visitors? Um, you know, I, I, I'm thinking they're not sleeping under the stars, but I never really thought of that. You do need, of course, to book either packages or well in advance because the one thing that determines who experiences it and who doesn't are those who have booked enough in advance to find a hotel room. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of um, places along the Iditarod line that take in guests. Sometimes there are only four, 10, uh, mm -hmm. 12 rooms, but uh, there's always that alternative as well. Yeah, my sister was there and she was tenting part of the time and staying in people's homes. A lot of people open up their homes for this event as they obviously don't the have whole the whole country gets involved and it's, yeah, That's it's exciting. very exciting. The Arctic yeah, Mardi Gras. And we saw, I love we that. saw the Aurora Borealis too, which was the icing on our cake because oh, yeah. that's one of those experiences you can't will to happen. No. You either experience it or you don't. And you included the Mark Twain House. How did he make the cut? The Mark Twain House in Hartford, Connecticut? Yeah. Ideally, I think every American at some point in their life should either visit Hannibal uh, directly on the Mississippi where he was born and raised or the Hartford House in Connecticut where he lived with his family for many, many years and wrote most or some, I'm not sure, of his most iconic works when there. And I love these private homes. I went to Graceland for the first time last year, too, in Memphis. Mm. Um, these private homes where... Even though you're part of a crowd, you know, if you're a crowd of two or a crowd of many, it's very heartwarming, I think, to kind of wander around someone else's home and to see the eyeglasses left on mm. the desk as if they just stepped out. I always uh, experience that same feeling when visiting the, the homes of the presidents. We went to Monticello outside of Charlottesville in Virginia um, a few years ago. Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the upstate New York, Hudson Valley, and Hyde Park. A lot of it is how they present it. I mean, from a European point of view, I go to Shakespeare's house, and it just feels like a shell yeah. to me. But you go to Salvador Dali's it's house. It's very and, impersonal. And it feels, Salvador Dali's house feels like he was there yesterday. So in your book, you would actually assess how gratifying it is from a visitor's point of view to visit these places when you decided what makes the cut. Yeah, if I found them to be those impersonal shells that maybe they just mm -hmm. didn't get included in the book because right. there's just far too much oh, to yeah. Well, that's what a travel writer has to do is sort through all the superlatives. And, and it's give... a tough call because yeah. what could be um, impersonal and a snooze for you can still elicit a whole lot of enthusiasm on the part of the next person. Yeah. So it's, it's often a, a tough call. It's yeah. a very personal thing, and I think that's why travel is a wonderful thing. And I try to include a little bit of everything to have everyone involved. And also, I should add that the budget aspect in the USA and Canada book hopefully is more inviting as well. The world book, people were always saying, oh, yeah, it's wonderful, but am I ever going to make it to the Seychelles Islands? Can I ever afford an African safari for my kids? Well, with the USA and Canada book, 
there's always not only something within a half hour or an hour's drive from your house, but even if you want to go farther afield, people are relatively naive, I think, in understanding how much our country offers. And it doesn't take much money and it doesn't take much planning. I hope that people don't wake up at 90 and understand that they've seen next to nothing of their mm. country because this is a pretty remarkable country. I don't think people ever regret having spent time and money going someplace, getting away from home and better understanding either their own country or, or the rest of the world. I'm speaking with Patricia Schultz, and she's the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. The first classic edition was all over the world, and the new book is A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Patricia, you included Thanksgiving at Plymouth Plantation. Tell me about that. What a great place to bring your kids and your great-grandparents or just yourself. I think it's one of those experiences. It's worth, you know, a year back at school. You can experience Thanksgiving as the pilgrims supposedly did, but also in a Victorian way. The whole spread ingredients in a menu that is held to be very close to the authentic and real thing, mm. docents and costumes, um, almost being part of a great play. Mm. Uh, very exciting, very fun, and history made alive. That sounds great. Now, I would include Bellagio in Italy, and I imagine you might have also in the World Book, but you included Bellagio in the United States. Why? Well, you know, Las Vegas is one of those places that has people either running in the opposite direction or salivating to get on the next plane back because, you know, would I go a million times to Las Vegas? No. But every once in a while, I think Las Vegas is kind of this oasis of neon insanity that is wonderfully American, gaming 24-7, and these massive gambling casino resort hotels where money is no issue. And for better or for worse, they're just wonderfully American. And the Bellagio is beautiful with the fountains, world-class restaurants. You don't even need to go into the casino the shows, you know, Cirque du Soleil is there in Las Vegas. Incredible entertainment, performers, restaurants, um, neon, getting married. And whether you embrace it or not, it's a legitimate slice of American culture, isn't it? The Strip. You've got to yeah. see The Strip. <laughs> you included the Memphis rib joints. Of all the rib joints around, tell me about the Memphis rib joints. There's this barbecue battle that's been going on for generations that I wasn't even all that aware of being a New York City gal. I knew there were certain destinations in America where it was all about food and many that were all about ribs. And the recipes and the kind of meat that you choose to barbecue and how long you... I mean, it's a whole mystery to me that I found wonderfully yummy mm -hmm. <laughs> and highly caloric. And the ribs in Memphis, Rendezvous is my favorite, but it's one of five or six. Um, and they have this, you know, competition going on with Kansas City, with the Texas whole rib thing. So there were rib wars going on between North Carolina and South Carolina. Really, you can eat to your heart's content and kind of cast your own vote. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, who's written A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. And her previous book was A Thousand Places to See Anywhere in the World Before You Die. Speaking of when you die, did you encounter many places in your travels, Patricia, that people actually went to die? I know uh, the great singer Caruso wanted to die in Sorrento in, in his fine, you know, Grand Hotel Excelsior, Victoria there. Did you run into that in your research at all? Just two times kind of stand out in my mind. Once was during a recent trip to Bhutan, and actually one of the women in our small group of 10 people died when we were there. You know, she was 60-something, apparently we found out afterwards, not in great health, and her family confided in us that she felt that if she needed to leave this world, it wouldn't be without having seen Bhutan. Mm. And on a more uplifting note, when I was in Machu Picchu, which is a pretty rigorous trip, I met this wonderful 90-year-old woman who said it was one of her first great trips. First, she put her children and her grandchildren through school. And she said, make sure you see the difficult places first because your knees have an expiration date. Oh, that's good advice. Yeah. <laughs> and she was seeing Machu Picchu and many others were on her list. One of the most gratifying moments for me as a tour guide was I was traveling with a man who must have been in his 90s and he was just wrapping up his life. And I remember him sitting on a white plastic chair. We had an umbrella over him on the top of a boat <laughs> cruising the, uh, the Mediterranean just off the coast of Turkey. And he looked at me and he said, Rick, what a wonderful way 
to, you know, cap, cap my life, to have this trip. And he knew he was on his last years, and to be there, it was a very inspirational thing. You know, one thing about travel to me, it's a, it's a fountain of youth also. You could write a book, I suppose, called A Thousand Places to See So You Don't Die. <laughs> or there is a cartoon in the paper of something that looked very much like the cover of my book that said 1,000 Places to See After You Die by Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> That's very good. Also, uh, the new trend in travel is to see places before they die. I mean, you could write a book called 1,000 <gasps> Places to Visit Before Isn't They Die. Isn't this true? The places that we know to be very fragile and not long for this world, and all the places that you in a million years would never suspect. Remember the brush fires that almost mm. engulfed the Parthenon oh, in yeah. Athens? I, I drove around the Peloponnese after that. It was really breathtaking to see what can happen when things go wrong in nature. Yeah. You know, the, the brush fires, the mudslides, all of the predictable stuff that happens with regularity. But whoever thought one Hurricane Katrina could almost erase an entire city that's so special to our fabric of the American culture? You know, we, we came this close to losing New Orleans. So it's not about our fragility or the fragility of our lives, but um, these destinations themselves, you never know. You never know. And, you know, when you think about the work that you've been doing and the people who are reading your book, it, it not only helps you appreciate your own life, but it helps you appreciate the wonder of this planet that we've been entrusted with and that it's a fragile thing, too. So it's probably a positive thing for us to all get out there and embrace life and at the same time embrace this beautiful planet. Carpe diem, right? Patricia Schultz, author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die and A Thousand Places to See in the United States and Canada Before You Die. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very, very much, Rick. We enjoy hearing from you, our traveling listeners, by email at radio at ricksteves.com. And in the radio section at ricksteves.com, you can email us a short travel essay bragging about your hometown, or send us an original haiku poem about your travels. We enjoyed hearing recently from a listener in Missouri who sent us a set of haikus she wrote about where she lives and her passion for all things Mark Twain. Cindy Lovell is a listener who now lives in Hannibal, Missouri, and emails us that she is, as she terms it, a Mark Twain junkie who dreams of following the equator as he did. She sends us this haiku about a trip to Italy she took as part of her interest in Twain's life. Lured to Italy to find the hillside villa where Mark Twain's wife died. And she adds these haiku about her new home in Hannibal. The house on Hill Street where young Sam Clemens grew up. I live just uphill. And Hannibal, Mecca, the constant on my compass. So now I live here. We'd enjoy hearing about your travels or about where you live. Write us an original haiku or send us a short essay to entice visitors to your town. Details are in the 15 Seconds of Fame section on the radio page at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Production and technical help comes from Sarah McCormick, Pat O'Connor, Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City and to Gretchen Strauch for reading today's haiku. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.